Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, probably not known to most of you here. Uh, I know he was one of Betty Clark's favorite preachers once upon a time. He was born in 1895 and died in 1960. I remember him as a teenager. I was a young believer, but he was uh, well known for his great pulpit strength, pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for three decades. He was an unusual kind of man. He was a scholar preacher, great theologian, and he could he ever deliver the goods. And he, he gives an account of something that I thought would be most helpful in a useful uh, segue into what we want to see in Psalm 25. By the way, you will need your Bibles to open to Psalm 25 this morning, so be there. Uh, we're, we're moving in that direction, and I'm going to read Psalm 25 with some uh, uh, comments in just a moment. Well, this is what Dr. Barnhouse said, and I'm quoting here. I learned the, the idea of a great God and a little God from my old Hebrew professor, Robert Dick Wilson. Wilson was one of the intellectual glories of Princeton Theological Seminary in the days of Warfield, Davis, Machen, and others. Students of church history know those names. They just resonate with uh, some... There were giants in the land in those days. <laughs> and after I had been away from the seminary for about 12 years, I was invited back to preach to the students. Old Dr. Wilson came into Miller Chapel and sat near the front. While I set forth the word of God, at the close of the meeting, the old gentleman came up to me, cocked his head on one side in his characteristic way, extended his hand and said, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I'm, I'm glad that you are a, a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. I asked him to explain, and he replied, Well, some men have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take away the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us, or take care, excuse me, he cannot, can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. He paused a moment and smiled and said, God bless you, and walked out. And now the rest is what uh, is worth reading is what Dr. Barnhouse said, drafting on this. Men are always in difficulty with their faith because their God's too small. If they want to see the true God and get the perspective that sees him as filling all in all, then the difficulties of life will rapidly diminish to their proper proportions. God knows all. He is all-powerful, unchanging, eternal, never failing. He has never made a mistake. He has never been surprised by anything that happened, for he has always known and decreed all things. I thought it would be best that you, rather than me trying to recount that, that you hear that. Now I want you to be looking with me at Psalm 25, please. please. And as you can see, I couldn't think of a better way to entitle this, this psalm than um, 
is your God big enough? We're going to track on that. So I want to read Psalm 25, and then we're going to say just a few things about it. By the way, before I do that, I need to tell you about someone that I know. That I know a man who had difficulties in his life. He was the youngest of his brothers who treated him with contempt. He had a father-in-law who tried to kill him. His wife ridiculed him. His daughter was raped. His sons were killed. He had a son who rebelled against him big time. His business partner deceived him. He lost his home. He committed adultery and conspired in the death of the woman's husband. Was he a big godder or a little godder? I'd like to take you to one of the Psalms which he wrote, which is Psalm 25. Your cage rattled just a little bit there. <laughs> okay, stay with me. Let's read this Psalm composed by David. And here's what he says. Oh my God. Now, oh, I want to alert you to something. Um, excuse if you must, that I'm going to have to use another uh, kitchen and table uh, analogy metaphor. This psalm is like a five-level layer cake. I'm going to call it a five-layer chocolate cake. Five layers. And you can see something unfold in this. I I want you to get the feel for the psalm. That's what I'm trying to do here for a few minutes. At first, you have a prayer, verses 1 to 7. That's the first layer. And then you have a meditation in verses 8 to 10. The meditation, it is, you know, threading it through the mind and savoring its thoughts and understanding them better. And then you have a third layer, verse 11, another prayer. Then, verses 12 to 15, another meditation. And then, verses 16 to 22, a prayer. Now, that's not all with this chocolate layer cake, five layers, that there are chunks of chocolate in the layer cake. And that is, there are things within the psalm that must be picked up upon and noticed. It's one reason why I've chosen to take this. It'll take us two weeks to eat this cake uh, today, and then we'll come back to it, Lord willing, in, in the first Sunday in August. So let's go into it, and let's see what <clears throat> comes out of it. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He's saying, I come to you in prayer, is what he's saying. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. He doesn't want them to triumphantly rejoice over him. Just a little tip off here. David mentions, no less, I think it's about 71 times in the Psalms he mentions enemies. More about that as we proceed. Indeed, none who walk, wait for you shall be put to shame. They won't be humiliated. I like that translation of this word shame. None of you shall be humiliated. Rely on you. Make me to know, understand your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Now, I'm inserting a translation here in this, and I hope it's not offsetting to you. I'm the New English translation, which I think helps it in some ways. Guide me into your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Now, in the Psalms, you'll often see this reference to salvation, and our instinct by being new covenant believers is we immediately go 
to the soteriological truths of justification by faith, sanctification. But quite often, especially in the Psalms, he's referring to a deliverance, a rescue. You got me out of something that I could have never gotten myself out by myself. You are the God of my who delivers me. For you, I rely, I wait all day long. Remember mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, or can we translate it, do not hold against me the sins of my youth and my rebellious acts, that word transgressions. Now this you want to pick up on, this is one of those little chunks of chocolate. He's going to repeat this thought in verse 11 and in verse 18. You know, when you read through scripture, you really want to have your thinking hat on and say, whoa, something's coming up repetitively. Could that not be the way the Spirit is using his highlighter? Well, okay. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great, it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now this covenant word is important because it speaks to the relationship between the psalmist and any believer, the bond that exists. It's a bond. It's a, like a wedding. There's a bond that's created, a bond of trust. No matter how hard things get, God's still our God. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. Uh, this word shame here is what about a third, fourth time it comes up. It's important. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now, you may think that seems a bit anticlimactic, but not at all when you consider who's writing this psalm and why he's writing it. All right, we have something to do with this psalm, so let's go to it. Now, let me, uh, let me walk you through just a couple of things, uh, some stepping stones ran into the, to the verses that we'll consider. We won't consider every verse. I hope that we will have done that by the time we have the two parts concluded. First of all, the circumstances of the psalmist. 
Maybe this is the Absalom episode. What a dark day that was. David's son seeks to kill him, take the throne, a coup d'etat. We don't know. But it does seem it was certainly later in David's life. He refers to the sins of his youth. And he is obviously quite conscious of his enemies. This is one of those psalms we know as a psalm of lament. It's a special category of psalms. There are about 50 of them. They go like this. They, with some variation, first of all, there's a direct address to God in a difficult time. It's just knocking on God's door. (laughs) And then there's a description of this lamentable situation. Here it is, Lord, giving the Lord information. God doesn't need it, but he gives it to God. There's a reason for it that way. And then there's an assertion of the psalmist's confidence in God's attributes. It runs right to those, his perfections. He's thinking that way, meditating on them. And then there's a petition for God to be favorable to him. Lord, I need help. I need your favor big time. And then he states specifically what he wants God to do for him. And then he goes into praise. A doxology, if you will. He, will, he vows praise. He breaks into praise. He's confident that God will answer his prayer. That's the way these lament psalms work. So if you see those characteristics, you'll know you're in one of those. This is also an acrostical psalm. You know about these. The famous one is what? Psalm 119. And it's a poetic device where the first word of each verse in this psalm begins with the the sequential letter in the Hebrew alphabet. All you Hebrew students, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. And so if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, just go over to Psalm 119, and there it is. All the stanzas are arranged that way. Now the question is at this point, why did they do this? Was he just, was David trying to be cute? (laughs) No. It had uh, several possibilities. Of course, it lent um, beauty to it, like when we hear poetry and we hear words rhyme that kind of catches us emotionally, gets our attention. That's probably part of it. I suggested that there is kind of an implied, would you like to know my situation and the perfections of God in my situation from A to Z? You pick that up, don't you? Well, so he was perhaps doing that. And then there is what seems to be most obvious or the one that's commented on most often in those full-time students of the Psalms, is that it's a pneumatic device, that it, 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 it enables, it helps for memory. The youth in Israel were taught the importance of memory, memorize, memorize, memorize. You couldn't go to a smartphone. You couldn't go Google. You didn't have artificial intelligence. You didn't have these crutches. You had to memorize it. Oh, there's something to be said for that. That's another sermon on meditation, knowing the truths and reciting them to oneself. So the theme of learning is big in the psalm, though David is in some in dire straits. He's got something, he wants to stress the importance of instruction and learning. And what we get in this psalm is that the psalmist is relating his problems to God. Do you do that? Do I do that? You know, the sad thing is, is that that's not nearly, often is not instinctive to us. We find sort of perverted satisfaction in wallowing in the problem. 
and inviting anxiety in the door. Hey, come on in. I got a problem. Hey, let's be my drinking buddy here. And so we may want to go that way, but you won't find that in these lament psalms. You don't find it here. What he's doing in this, I like the word, words of Spurgeon who said this. He's so quotable. It is the mark of a true saint that his sorrows remind him of his sins and his sorrow for sin drives him to his God. And now, this is a very thoughtful lament psalm. Sometimes in these lament psalms, you can almost feel, feel David's pulse increasing. I mean, it's up there in a high zone. He is intense. But there seems to be a calmness associated with this one and uh, some tranquility in it. But he's still very passionate in the process. So I would ask us again, and this is what I hope we can get out of this psalm, do you relate your problems to God? How well do you do that? I hope it will all, will all be coached. So David had some pressures, and they come out in this psalm. He had enemies, he had need for guidance, and he had a burden of guilt. Did you notice that? And you wonder, why? Why does he interject that? I'd like to chase that a little bit as we proceed. So here the Psalms are like this. And they are meant to help us through difficult times. Aren't they so soothing and comforting? The closer I get to the gates of glory, the more I find myself just kind of magnetized to the Psalms. They're so soothing. Mindful of the fact that Jesus said, he is, abund he, he is there in the Psalms. You remember that? Can't pursue that thought much. We'll get back to it. But he's there. He's in the background, sometimes really very much so in the foreground of these Psalms. All right, let's just do, there are four of these statements that I will bring to your attention. These assertions of truth, questions, I framed them that way. I only will address two of them. First of all, is your God big enough to help you with your enemies? All right. Mentions them in verse 2, verse 19, and in verse 15. Well, now you may be sitting there thinking, you know, I'm like that old cowboy in some of the old movies. He's, well, no matter where he was, he walked into terrible situations. just says, I'm a peaceable man. Only a few of you remember that. I'm a peaceable man. So you may be sitting there thinking, I don't have any enemies. I'm good. Well, by the time this psalm gets through with us, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. Okay? Maybe in ways you hadn't anticipated. Not as an end in itself, but as a precaution and as a step toward running to God quickly. Okay, let's, let's look at it a little bit. David always, always having to contend with enemies. Think of it. Let's do a brief, this is your life over his life. First of all, he lives a good bit of his earlier days, youth. He's in exile. He's running from his father-in-law, Saul. And Saul wanted to, he's trying to kill him. So there were enemies who, and listen, Saul had his partisans. Oh, well on up in, even after Saul was dead. Saul had his partisans and they didn't like David. They wanted him to see, see him eliminated. And his enemies, they used conspiracy. He was surrounded by enemies. He didn't live off in some kind of a mountain retreat where all was placid and calm. 
And then there was the coronation of David. Do you remember down in Hebron when after he had served, uh, well, been, hadn't been fully over all Israel and Judah. So guess what? When he's coronated king, he said, well, that ought to be good now. No, his enemies, conspiracies. And guess who comes after him? He's got some bad neighbors in the neighborhood. They don't like him. Oh, my, they make noise all during the night. Their dogs bark. They try to come and bother, bother you. They throw insults at you. Oh, I'm referring to the Philistines. When they found out David was king, you will read through lives. David and said, David's king now. Let's go get him and kill him. Mm. And then we're not through. That's not enough. David brought a sword into his own family, did he not? And what he did in the way he mishandled the Absalom episode and what he did in his adultery, that what happened is that David was opposed in his family. It was difficult. There were consequences through his life. And David was conscious of his sins. You can see that in this psalm. And it troubles him, but he deals with it. Now, let's think of something else. I'm just wanting you to get in David's sandals here to appreciate this <laughs> psalm. That David's position as a king was very important. And you can't really fully grasp the psalms. It wasn't like a, a John Q. Citizen. This is a king of the theocracy. Do you know the theocracy? That was God's rule on earth. No nation has ever enjoyed such a unique role in the family of nations. There is no, in the United Nations, there is no place called for uh, where the theocracy sits. Israel's not a theocracy today. And so David was this king. And the enemies essentially were primarily were those who were opposed to the theocracy. So when you're going after David as king, you're going after the theocracy. And you go after the theocracy, you're going after God. So we can't, we can't say that. Sometimes those, they're those who want to refer, well, you can't touch so-and-so. They're God's anointed. Hold off. And I know where they get that. They get it with regard to David's view towards Saul. Don't, I'm not going to kill him. He's the king. So he understood that, the importance of that. So this is a special phase of spiritual warfare when Israel was a theocracy. And what you see through the Psalms is the battlefield in the theocracy, and David is the king. And David's defeat would have meant dishonor to him and to his God. He was very much aware of that. Now let's just survey it then. I want to do this just to kind of make sure we've got connections with all these things. When you go through... All these places where David refers to his enemies, these are some of the things that come up. They're preachable, each of them. Uh, they're defeated. They're smitten. They shall be ashamed. They'll perish. They'll be judged. They, David sought and received protection from God from these enemies. God delivers them from, from them. God sustains David in the presence of his enemies. Those who hate David wrongfully, these are the themes that just keep bubbling up. Now, question, what was David's response to his enemies? First of all, he did not allow them to dictate to him the, return, the terms of the battle. You do it to me, I'm going to one-up you, and I'll do it to you. No, he didn't go there. He had an entirely different strategy. He was determined to seek 
God's help, and did he? That's what we have the example of here. And David's best defense was, football fans, was an offense, a very good offense. God used David's proven character. Now, I know you want to go and you want to slap him around a little bit, David, but you did mess up on some occasions. But keep this in mind. When God throws David bouquets and says things of him, the one thing that's pointed out is, it's not pointed out that he lived a perfect life. No. The, the, the sin that he had in his adultery with Bathsheba and Uriah's death, that's pointed out. And God says, that was, the big, that was a big one. That was bad. But that, is not the, that did not define David. And so here we are then with this question then, how did David respond to his enemies? Now, I want to say something immediately about this word shame. You're looking in your Bible. I want to call some attention to things here. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That I'm coming to you in fervent prayer. That's the way he knocks on the door. O my God, in thee I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Now, you want to circle this word ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. And I'm going to have to explain this word ashamed, but I wanted you to see it, how he uses it here also in verse 3. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. Now, we have a use of the word shame that's not the way the Bible's using it here. We'll, uh, I don't know if you ever got a good scolding. I don't know, maybe your mother or father said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Have you ever had that said to you? Ashamed that you should be embarrassed. Listen, maybe they even threw this at you. Remember your last name. <laughs> Something like that. That's not the way it's used here. It's not an embarrassment. The way he uses the word, the Hebrew words, uh, it, it comes out, Hebrew words are often easy to remember because they're often three letter, two letter words. It's bosh, or bosh rather. Bosh! Be ashamed. And what he is saying. Because, and, and the reason I'm, I'm taking this uh, point, putting it under the, under the magnifying glass, is that this is really the entry point and the door to the whole psalm, this matter of shame. And what is he saying? He does not want to be a public disgrace to God. The idea, idea is, Lord, I don't want to be let down. I don't, to uh, put it another way, I don't want my life to have been seen as that I bet on the wrong horse, if you'll accept that analogy, that the wrong, wrong horse who came in last. <laughs> I don't want that to be known of me. I want my finishing life, my life finished, and I want to the end, I want it to be an honor to you. And this, he, he doesn't want to be let down. He doesn't want to be abandoned to the, by the end. Now, why does David talk that way? He said, David, you're not, didn't you hear those hymns we were, you were singing? And you recited and wrote yourself. All right, this brings me to the question, and I want to I milk this for a little bit then. With what you see here in this text, and I'm going to be pointing out different passages. This is, a, this is a, a psalm that kind of moves back and forth. I've already showed you the five layers. You know, your meditation, prayer. It's not so easily categorized, but here, let's, let's do it this way. How do I respond to my enemies? 
What can I learn from David? How to respond to people who don't like you. Do you really, do you think everybody in your social circumference likes you? I can tell you about mine. No, I'm not going to tell you about mine. But I don't think everybody likes me. And you've probably had experiences and better, better forgotten and gone <laughs> that they don't like you. Maybe. Well, let's, let's just survey the field a little bit. There is really an excellent treatment of this very thought about enemies in a little book. I've mentioned it before that is called uh, Love in Hard Places by D.A. Carson. And he's got a wonderful chapter on this uh, subject of enemies. And this is where I, it really kind of lifted my thoughts up. He deals with it, uh, first of all, little enemies, and then big enemies. Well, I'll, for, the, for our purposes here, I'll reverse them. All right, they're the big enemies. Who are the big enemies? Big enemies would be persecutors. This is what, to what Jesus, uh, whom Jesus referred in Matthew 5. Those who don't like our faith, they don't like Christ, they don't like Christianity, they don't like its exclusionary tone. Oh, wow, we've got a new thing in our culture. Inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Uh, the sneaky thing is they don't mean it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a masquerade. But Christianity then is looked to be, you're exclusive. You don't, you don't accept everybody as they are. You don't love everyone. So persecution comes up in the name of virtue and in the name of goodness, in the name of the righteous cause. We got another religion that's sticking its head in the door, accusing us Christians of being at the, at the bottom of the pyramid. We're the lowlifes as Christians. So we have persecution. Oh, I read some stories this week. Uh, David, you brought to my attention in Sunday school last week, the Open Doors booklet. Are there any of those left downstairs? About three or four left. Well, I started reading that this week because what it does, it takes the nations of the world where Christians face the greatest persecution. And number one in there is Korea. And you read those statements about what Christians in North Korea, North Korea, what they're having to deal with. And you have to have ID papers. It's like this Bhutanese. You have to have citizenship papers. And it's this surveillance culture. Oh, watch out for surveillance cultures. Red China is probably the paragon. They are the greatest example of a surveillance culture. And be careful. Be concerned about that as you see the tentacles of that coming into our own society. To know who you are, what you think, where you are, what you're doing, and... Then comes with that the cancel culture. It's really crept in, isn't it? Because you can go online now and find out things. This is one reason, I'm off my point. One reason why I think Christians or people who are just uh, very ethical people who are uh, um, good people would not want to get in politics because all someone's got to do is just go online and they'll find out what you did in the fourth grade. And in and, and high school, and, you know, you have no secrets. And who wants to be put out there for that kind of thing? So I'm thinking, I got off the point, I'm thinking about the North Korea and the believers and the stories they tell, these believers. And they have identification papers. And it will identify on these papers people with whom you're associated. 
and they give accounts of how God works in his providence to protect them because when they come to the guards and security forces here and there and they have to give an account and show them their papers, it seemed like quite often that the guards, the security people, uh, check somebody before them, skip them, and go to somebody after them. But every, how would you like that standing in line every time you're, you're scrutinized to that degree? And as a Christian, it's not a uh, very promising outcome when you're so identified. All right, so, but persecution is not just physical. It can be insults, it can be slander, sneering condescension, the cancel culture, intellectual dismissal, political and national enemies. Oh, that's, I wrote some things out here. I'm looking at them and saying, I'm thinking to myself, you don't have time to go through that. That'll get you two roads off, the main road. But how government has become our enemy in many instances, it set itself against a Christian worldview. And if you have the audacity to assert that in the marketplace, hey, it's all right if you want to get in your little box on Sunday and you can believe and do what you want to do, but don't you take it out into the work world, into the recreational world, into the entertainment world, anywhere out there. That's a no-go zone. We'll get you. All right, so much for the big enemies. Okay, what about the little enemies? Well... This can come, people don't like you. It can be that uh, they don't like your personality. They don't like your outlook. Uh, it could be such that it could be a, a stepfather, stepmother, a sibling, brother-in-law, an ex-spouse, a lot of that, a parent, a fellow Christian or fellow church member. You mean you could have somebody that doesn't like you at church? This is what we understand to be true. And people who, uh, whose personality is uh, we personally instantly dislike. We find a way to go out. They go out one door. We go out another door. Uh, they're in one aisle. We go to the other aisle. And those who, there are those who nurse bitterness for decades. Decades. And so... Then you get a multicultural church. This is what churches, often, I, I saw a church advertised recently, I went online, had to check it out for someone, and that they presented themselves, we are, we want, we're a picture of, we want to be a little bit of heaven. We want to look like heaven, that was it. We want to look like heaven. The only difference is, when you're in heaven, you have no sinful nature, but when you're here, you have a sinful nature, and you're not going to look a lot like heaven. Though you may have the skin color disbursement and the culture disbursement, the ethnicity, this, the ethnicity disbursement, and you can have all kinds of social issues and degrees and such. But you know what? You've got some potential for some real misunderstandings in church. That's one reason. I'm off my point. That's one reason why some Christians are real church hoppers. Because they're looking for a church with a lot of people just like they are, at least the way they think they are. And it's all well and good. Well, so as a Christian, we're like the disciples. Let's get back on track with that thought. We're sent forth as sheep where? In the midst of wolves. Satan hates us. Demonic forces hate us. Unbelievers are suspicious of us. Family can become our enemies. Tough one, tough one. Discipleship is going to result in opposition. 
Jesus in Matthew 10, 36, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Fellow believers will oppose you, will declare themselves our enemies when our stand for the Lord rebukes them. They just don't like it that you show up at Thanksgiving and Christmas because that really just makes things a little tense because you are there. Maybe so. Satan is our enemy. Oh, is he ever? When he's a murderer, he, is, he has got you in his crosshairs, all of us. And they're the enemies of the cross who hate Jesus Christ. Paul is an example of a man who had many enemies. I, just in the providence of God, I'm reading my Bible through. I read now, I'm reading in the Psalms and go to the Acts. And I, I'm opening it up into Psalm 41 and bang, bang, bang. It's one of those Psalms where David is dealing with his enemies. And then I go over and read Acts 25. That's the passage that came up. And it's about Paul who has had to go through all these trials before Felix and Festus, you know, and all the rest, Agrippa. And guess what? Because in these trials, who shows up? His enemies. We wanted him killed. So they were in court to get him eliminated. Paul had the enemies his entire life. His, his road was lined with enemies. Get him, get him, get him, get him. Now why I stress this? To make you jumpy? No. But you know, I want to know what God said through people like David and Paul. And, whoa, especially so, I want to see how did Jesus live his life in the midst of enemies? Where did that take him? That's where I would like for us to land. And so let me offer to you a fact of what I would think from what David is saying here. And that is, what's my biblical strategy for handling uh, enemies? I want to make, just touch on a couple of things. First of all, we pray for them, don't we? Isn't this what David is doing in this psalm? He's praying, praying for them, praying for himself. And let your life serve as an answer to whatever you're being accused of or the suspicions that exist. Let your life be an answer. That doesn't, that's not saying everything. That, yes, there are reasonable and other kinds of responses. Uh, so, and don't resort to their tactics they don't speak to you, you don't speak to them. Okay, you can get your revenge. And verbal attacks or hatred. And Jesus just knocks us down with love your enemies. I came upon this one morning this week on my uh, morning minute. And when I got through writing it out, sometimes it happens this way. And then I think, what did I just say? <laughs> I'm on the line here. Enemies. And... So here, here is this, and I, I, I want to say something about what we're going to do with more next week. Can I, not next week, two weeks from now. That it's the what-ifs problem, and you see that here with David. And the what-ifs, Lord, what if, what about the, my sins of my youth? But what about those times I've not handled my enemies very well, and I've resorted to some unbiblical tactics? And will my enemies prove that they've been right about me all along? How will it be in the end? It's the what ifs issue. And so, will I have let my enemies pull me down? That can happen, can it? And people can be, so you can end up being so adversarial. 
Maybe you come from a family that where this is kind of baked into your family dynamics. If people come after you, you can roll up your sleeve. Now, you may have come from a nice, sweet, kind, peaceful, gentle family structure. Okay, that's look, count your blessings. Maybe could put you a little bit, make you a little naive, but um, there are... Um, all right, that's enough of that. But uh, let's, let's go further with this then. So here it is. Now, we've got another question here. There are two of these that I deal with this morning. The second of these, is your God big enough to guide you? Now, this is what David is saying. Look, in verses 4 and 5, he says, Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation, my deliverance. What's he doing here in these verses? Say, Lord, I need to get a handle on your revelation, what you have told me, how to think, how to conduct myself, how to relate to people, paths, ways, your truth. So David needed guidance because he desired to do what? Imitate God. Tall order, isn't it? Imitate God. And David wants to have his life ordered by God's way. So David wants to remain firm and faithful to the end. And if, if that's going to happen, he's got to be taught by God, taught by God, taught by God. I right, want to savor that a bit. I don't know where I got this quote, but I see it in front of me. It says, a school book lesson herein, a school book lesson on how to live so as to please God and be blessed by him. So here he's speaking. Now watch him as he goes verses 8 to 10, and I'm going to start drafting on these statements. Look at verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. That word good is massive in its, I know we use, we wear it out. As the Hebrew words, one of those easy words, it's the word tov, tov. Says so a T-O-B, but the B is a V sound. Tov. Well, this is more than just moral goodness. This is not, as we say, well, he's a nice person. That word really is overused. We can't think of anything else to say, well, he was nice. Or it's a nice conversation. What a we it just kind of cover for a lot of other things. Good. Good in terms of mercy. All the perfections of God are wrapped up in this. We're going to do this a little bit more in a couple of weeks and examine these ways he refers to God here. Upright is the Lord. Here's mercy and justice in here, bound up in this. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. David knows who he is and the help he needs. He leads the humble, ah, this word, ana in the Hebrew, ana, A-N-A, ana means to, the word verb means to kneel, to submit, and to be teachable, and to listen, to be approachable. Humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are, this is that steadfast love, loyal love. So here, here's what it is. What we need do, we need guidance in order to navigate our way through life. Imitating God as we go. Here, first of all, this requires, what's it require for guidance? How to behave, how to respond, how to uh, mitigate the situation, 
What's my responsibility with my enemies, whether they're big or small? First of all, just picking up on these, teach me, guide me, and, and teach me. And David, this is what Spurgeon says about this. David applies for a scholarship in the College of Grace. <laughs> okay, go there. That's one. And this truth has got to be internalized. What we're reading, what we're studying, what we're thinking. You heard me use the word meditate in the psalm. There's meditation, prayer, meditation, prayer. Spiritual application of God's law to one's life. And God will do it. This is the work we know as in theological terms as illumination. It's where the Spirit of God, he's the hand in the glove of truth, that enables us to begin to sort out things, think through things, be able to understand people better, circumstances better, with, uh, with biblical principles, with, with skillful with tools. Oh, you know, I love to watch people come in and work on my appliances. Not me. I love to watch people come in. I love to watch people come and work on anything that's not working. You know why? I love to watch people to, to solve problems who know what they're doing. And they make it look so easy. And they got a tool for this. And I look at that. Well, uh, most of my tools are ones I've found out on the street somewhere. And, uh, and they've got the right tools. They know how to use them. They have those skills. You know, this is the way truth is to come up into our lives. And it isn't something that we uh, preen ourselves on and we're cocky about it. It's just that we're taught of God in his word. We know his principles, the promises, the commands. We've read, read through scriptures. We, got a, we get increasingly a pretty good feel, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, for what pleases God, what displeases him. And so, you know, you begin to bring that into relationships. So God wants us to learn his ways. Isn't that evident in this psalm? And the divine perfections show up to enable the sinner to know how to live in difficult situations. And God has a distinct way he wants the godly to walk. See verse 12, if you will, uh, look at the, well, the whole verse. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. What does he get here? the way he should choose, that you begin, you make the right decisions because God will help you. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're going to make some bad decisions at times. Understand that. But you know, I, just as an aside, I thought again as Ron read that passage from Matthew. You know how that passage ends? You know, bring, bring it up in your mind. That passage ends with, I'm, listen, I've studied it and read interpreters. <laughs> on and on about that because it says after all that love your enemies thing it says be perfect because your God in heaven is perfect what <laughs> wait a minute do I have the right what's the Greek word there <laughs> maybe, maybe I can find a way out of this be perfect Lord so help me so there are I just want to conclude this at this point saying that there are advantages there are advantages for seeking God's guidance whether it's marriage, a marriage partner, education, relationships, career, money, home, child rearing, church, business decisions, dating. Well, they don't call it dating anymore. Hang out with. Isn't that the kind of the way? That, yeah, whatever that means. Planning, goal setting, this sort of thing. It's the sufficiency of God's word. What kind of disciple of Jesus am I becoming? 
Is it working in, in and through me? All right, so how do we then experience this? Uh, I've got to run to the conclusion here. I'm going to try to do some things with verses 9 and 10 a little further, but let me just state them, and I hope you get them. I want to get to the conclusion quickly. The guidance of God requires a willingness to submit to God. Do you want God's guidance in life? I, I just kicked the door open. I got to be careful here. Guidance doesn't mean that we've got to find that it's our objective to find out the sovereign will of God before it happens. That's why a lot of Christians take guidance. If they think, we've got to wait around, does God want me to be, I was speaking to someone earlier, does God want me to buy a RAV4 or a CRV? Okay, Lord, could you, could you, um, and you begin to look for signs. And, oh, what, I'm thinking about this, and what commercial keeps coming up on TV? That's it. Folks, that's not the way you do it. That's superstition. That's voodooism. You don't go with your, whatever your emotional, you're resonating with your emotions. Now, I've, of course, I've reduced it to a matter of a piece of metal versus a piece of metal. And automobiles, it may be six one way, half dozen the other. So I've oversimplified it. But I mean, you do not want to get into places where you think that God's got to write a sign in the sky and whatever your next impression is, that that's God's voice speaking within you. The word, the word, the word, truth, 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 how it fits together, putting it together. So determined to know God's will. Lord, I want to please you. That's the most important. What will honor you and glorify you? Start praying that way. Young people, young people, start praying that way now and maybe you don't know enough truth to get in out of the rain. Don't feel bad about it. We've been there. I remember, I remember saved at the age of 14. <laughs> and I look back and say, oh, what I didn't know. <laughs> oh, but God's faithfulness. I'm saying this. Start praying this. Lord, give me wisdom in my ways. I'll make the right choices. That I'll see that things in people that I need to see. I can't see their hearts. But then when you get to that age where you're making decisions on a future spouse, you think, Whoa, I'm not sure that'd be the place to go with that person. Uh, you get me here? All right, let's get back to this and conclude it. So you want to seek to know God in all his perfections. See this? Look at verse 13 and 14, verse 13 and 14. His soul will abide in prosperity. That means when you tap into the wisdom of God, there are going to be beneficial results from that. That's the prosperity thing in the covenant of the Old Testament within the law of Moses. There are, there are dividends to it. And his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. I think that means his intimate circle. And the close, the better disciple you are, the more intimate relationship you have with Christ, the more finely tuned you are, and you're seeing and thinking according to the precepts of Scripture, you're going to see things that others aren't going to see. Don't make that a matter of pride. There's no badge you can wear for that. Don't try it. <laughs> but that you thank God that there are things that God will show you as part of his intimate circle of those who want to obey him and please him. And it's a blessing, a blessing to others. So that's the guidance so, that he speaks of. And then there is to be this persistently seek his guidance. Wait, see verse 15. My eyes are 
continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. If I'm, what is our Christianese? We say, keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on, what does that mean? I, I can't help but think of some kind of a baseball analogy. Daniel, this is for you. All right. What do you do? What's a big thing where you're pitching or batting? Locate In pitching, it's location, location. In batting, it's keeping your eye on the ball. You know, there's some batters, they just are blessed with vision that's incredible. Oh, Ted Williams was one of those kind. Had this batting average almost 400. He'd say he could see the seams on the ball when it comes in. <laughs> that was never my experience. And you can see if it's going to be a curveball, and you don't, you don't go back and do this, and then it comes right across. Shrink! My point is this, that your eyes, what we want is our spiritual vision, so be well-tuned to see things that we need to see. Discernment is what we call it. And so this is the kind of thing that he's saying, is that I want to be able to sort out circumstances, not reading circumstances like tea leaves. No, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, no. This happened, this happened, this happened, therefore God's telling me this. Truth, 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 truth. That's the GPS. I had an illustration earlier in this. I'll just have to save it later. But I love it. It's fun. I'll just say it. Use Waze, W-A-Z-E. Has that ever saved our bacon many a time, especially when you get two oxygenarians in the front, front seats of the car and you're trying to find a place you've never been to before and it's raining and it's dark. Thank you, Waze. And that female voice, whoever she is, half mile, turn right. 900 feet, turn left. Oh, okay. <laughs> And God's word can show up in our lives, and I don't want to reduce it to mechanics and so easily done, but I'm just trying to say that what he's saying, that, you know, when I will have a pattern in my life where I'm seeking to please God and honor him, that it will keep me from making, from doing stupid things, making stupid decisions, overreacting and just going on emotion and acting in revenge and retaliation, enemies who are using their tactics, and I won't resort to those. All right, I need to stop. I will tell you this. I conclude. I've got another story. This is it. Briefly. I came across this. This was so helpful to me. It's a reference here in a little book I have by Derek Thomas on some of the Psalms. Just a life little paperback. I got a whole section. Every time I've been anywhere to find, and I see a book on the Psalms, I buy it. So I've got them. So I'm still using them. And here's one of them. And this is what he, I've read this story by Derek Thomas tells on, it's on Psalm 25. And he refers to John Owen. And uh, with this, with this in, in relation to, it's about Psalm 25. And he says, John Owen's words prove right for Margaret McLaughlin during the killing times when brave covenanters refused to obey the king before God. This is back in the 1600s. Two godly women stand out, Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson. Never heard of them. I hadn't until I read this. And these, these were, had been called the Wigtown Martyrs. McLaughlin was a girl of 18, and Margaret Wilson, a woman of 70. In April 1685, 
They were sentenced to be tied to stakes fixed within the flood mark of the water of Blednock. This is like a, a tide comes in. It's like Bay of Fundy kind of thing where you can be in an area where it's, when the tide's out, hey, you can walk and move around there. All right, they put one of them there. Here's where it goes. Near Wigtown, this water of Blednock near Wigtown. Where the sea flows at high water, there to be drowned. Tied at the stake, the water's coming in. The sentence was carried out on May the 11th, 1685. The elder of the two Margarets was set lower down the river so that the younger might see her struggles and her death and hopefully repent. It proved not to be so. Having witnessed the death of her friend as the salty waters reached her neck, Margaret McLaughlin was heard to sing the 25th Psalm with the words, My sins and my faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. Alter thy mercy, after thy mercies, think of me and for thy goodness great. Margaret's got there before we did in Psalm 25 and found it to be quite settling and encouraging the goodness of God. Do you know the Lord? Have you put your trust in him? If you drop out of this life and go over the precipice into eternity, will it be through the golden gate in the presence of Jesus Christ? You can know that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Oh, Lord. It, it, we get into it. There's just so much here you, that you reveal this wonderful, wonderful. Well, you're wonderful, Lord. So satisfying to our soul. So thank you, Lord. And if there's one here without Jesus Christ, oh, I pray that he, she, they'll get on their knees today, humble themselves, and look to you for the saving work, your saving work of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Let's sing together.